We're going to go ahead and keep on moving through the the book of Romans. We're going to start chapter 5 today. So this is Romans part 9, not chapter 9, part 9. On average, we're hitting a couple parts per chapter. That's why the numbers don't match up. But as I was going through this, I was reminded of the story of the thief on the cross. So let me read that to you. Luke, 20, or Luke 23, 39 through 43 says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. As I was thinking about this and thinking about this story of this thief on the cross who is, who is referred to as a criminal, is referred to as a, a thief, and, and obviously it must have been a pretty severe crime because he's on a cross. I mean, it might have been rough back then, but I don't think that they're putting you on the cross for stealing a loaf of bread. Now, we don't know exactly what this guy did, but we do know that he was a criminal. We do know that whatever he did was bad enough to put him on the cross, which is either something horrendous or being Jesus, or the two things that will get you put on a cross. But what I love about this story is it's one of the greatest demonstrations of the reality that salvation comes by faith. It's one of the greatest demonstrations that we have. It's one of the first ones that we see where it's documented that, that as Jesus was on the cross, this man places his faith in him. And we know, like I said, a couple of things. One, it's likely that he placed his faith in Jesus, probably a little, a little reactionary fear. He says, hey, idiot on the other cross, what are you acting like this for? Don't you see that we're under the same condemnation? Don't you see this is our last chance? Don't you see that there's nothing else after this? He's, he's a little concerned about his eternity at this moment. And we know for certain that he was a criminal because it's unlikely that they would have put him on the cross, like I said, for stealing a loaf of bread. He's done something pretty severe. He's, he's, he's likely probably murdered somebody in the in the in the the course of his robbery, his thievery. And whatever he did, it required his death. And not only did it require his death, but it required his death in an incredibly horrendous way. You know, one of the things that we see today in the court systems, and if, if people do believe in the death penalty, they at least want it to be humane. No matter how bad the person was, if they're going to get the death penalty, we still want to be humane in our administering of it. They didn't care so much about that back then. Matter of fact, this was supposed to hurt. This was supposed to be painful. This was supposed to deter people from doing these kind of things. And if you remember one of my Easter messages not too long ago when I was talking about how much Jesus loved you, I described in somewhat greater detail than I normally would the, the pain of being on the cross. This wasn't a minor death. This wasn't a lethal injection. This wasn't electrocution. It wasn't quick. It wasn't painless. This was an awful death. And this man had done something that was deserving of that kind of punishment. We can also be pretty certain that he didn't go to church regularly on Sunday. Now, that being said, nobody did back then. But it's likely he didn't go to synagogue. It's likely he didn't go to... I mean, this, this is not a, a good guy. He's not someone that you would think of as, as a classy character. He's a criminal. He's a bad guy. He didn't live morally. He got himself into all kinds of trouble. But the interesting thing is, knowing all of this, all this we can surmise from where he's at on the cross, Jesus said, 
today you will be with me in paradise. That's interesting because it can't be based on anything that that man had done. I guarantee you that there was no time from when he said, Jesus, remember me, a simple prayer, a simple cry to Jesus, say, hey, remember me, I'm, 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 I'm counting on you because I can't do it on my own. We know from that moment and the time that he died, he didn't jump off the cross and make atonement for his sins. He didn't have any time to go to church a bunch. He didn't have any time to help some little old ladies across the street. He didn't have time to do all the right things and give generously and be nice to people to try to balance out his cosmic scales. He was on the cross. He had no time. And Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. It was not based on anything the man had done. It certainly couldn't have been based on the awful things that he'd done because awful things don't get you into heaven. But it couldn't have been based on the good things that he'd done because there was, there was no good things left. He didn't have the time. It was simply his faith in Jesus. He said, Jesus, think about me. So simple. It also demonstrates the simpleness of the gospel. You don't have to perform. You just say, Jesus, think about me. Jesus, I'm putting my trust. I can't do it. It's obvious. So can you take care of this for me? And this is what Paul's been preaching so far through the book of Romans. You know, we talked about in Abraham was before the law. David was after the law. And this guy, this thief on the cross, was transitioning into the New Testament gospel. In every single case, salvation is always based on faith in Jesus. That's what we talked about last chapter. The entirety of chapter 4 was talking about how salvation is based completely on faith. It's always been the result of faith. It's never been anything else. And this is also true for us today, starting with the thief on the cross. You have to cry out and say, Jesus, remember me. And now that Paul has somewhat settled that, he's going to start going forward with some more logical arguments. He says that if we are, in fact, justified by faith there are some things that are just a given we don't have to argue about them if we can agree that we're justified by faith here's some other things that we have based on that one we have peace with god i know it's good to have peace with god if you don't have peace with god you're up against an enemy or will be and that's what the bible says that before we were saved he was our enemy so if you don't have peace with god if you're at war with god you're up against an enemy that you cannot beat it's good to have peace with God. We have gained access. It's one of the most amazing. I don't know if you felt it this morning, but God was in this room this morning. And the reality is, is that where the scripture says where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is. So we know he's in the room regardless, but sometimes we don't feel him. Like I, I felt him this morning. He was here. The tangible presence of God. We get access to that. We get access to sit in the same room with God, to look at him face to face because of this salvation. We have the Holy Spirit coming, living inside of us who testifies to us that we're... Be I don't know if you guys realize that. We'll talk about it a little bit later, but that's... It is amazing that in Christianity that we can be certain that we are saved and that we have God's Spirit inside of us testifying to us to that every single day. When the enemy comes and says, no, you're not good enough, the Holy Spirit says, well, yeah, in Him you are. He testifies with us. And even when our, the scripture says, even when our heart tries to condemn us, the Holy Spirit has something else to say. We've been reconciled with God. And one of the 
greater things, I think, especially if you understand the power and might that God really has as we escape the wrath of God. For those who are going to experience the wrath of God, it is not going to be a good time. Amen? Let's read Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we even get to the, to the peace of God, I want to point out something and, and kind of how this has been translated. He says, since we have been justified by faith. The point I want to point out is this bit here. We have been. Or we have been, if you would like. But we have been justified by faith. It's actually translated in this way because it's trying to demonstrate what the Greek word is actually trying to say. And I would tell you what the Greek word is, but I can't pronounce it anyway, so just know there's a Greek word there that is translated to English. And it doesn't mean that we are being declared righteous. We're not in a state of being, a state of this is happening right now. It says we have been. It's pointing to the past. The moment you are saved, this has happened. Right now, you are not being justified. Right now, you have been justified. It already happened. It's not something we're working through or working towards. It's not a, a meter that's filling up every day, getting a little bit more justified. But the moment that you're saved, it has happened. It is something that has already been done. It's a done good news. It always amazes me that the, the, the completeness, completeness with what God has done for us. We, you know, when, we talk, when we do communion, that's what we're remembering is the completeness of what Christ did on the cross. It's not a partial thing. It's not a we're getting closer and closer, but it is just done. And the first thing that we have to understand, when, because that has been done, since we have been, Paul's not even arguing anymore. He's done arguing, saying, all right, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that you were once an enemy of God? It's crazy to think that. The one time you were, if you were not saved, if you haven't received the Lord Jesus Christ, you were in opposition to God Most High. You are considered His enemy. And 5.10, Romans 5.10, which we'll see before we end today, it says that, that we are actually enemies with God before we're saved. And you can say, wait a minute, I wasn't an enemy with God. I wasn't going out of my way to, to, to go against Him even before I got saved. I wasn't His enemy, but the Scripture says you were. Matter of fact, in Romans 8, 7, it says that the mind that is set on the flesh, which is you before you were saved, is hostile towards God. Even if you're not going out of your way to intentionally afflict pain against God or against God's people, you are still at war with Him. You're still hostile towards Him if you're not saved because your mind is not on the flesh. Intentionally or not, we were His enemy before we were saved. And if you're not saved, you still are His enemy right now. And I think most of us, if we look back and we think a little bit critically, critically on how we acted and how we behaved, we can actually see that this was the case. Intentionally or not, we look in how we were actually in opposition to God. But the Bible says now that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And one, I want you to know that he's not really speaking of an inner peace. 
He's not really speaking of a personal peace. This is actually in reference to our relationship with God. And the best way that I, I can think about describing it is like when you have two warring countries going against each other. This isn't like now we can just feel good and I have, I have personal peace. No, we were at war and now we have a peace treaty in place. Like two warring countries that were fighting each other and killing each other. When they sign a, a treaty, there is now peace between them. There, there is now not one trying to kill the other or the other trying to kill the other. There is complete peace between them, that they no longer see each other as adversaries, but instead they see each other as allies. That means that we're no longer in opposition to God. And as a result, we can know that God isn't trying to express His wrath towards us anymore. The Scripture says that those who are living in sin are storing up wrath. But if you're saved, the wrath has already been extinguished. God doesn't have any more wrath for you. Yes, even if you sin, you're not storing up a little bit of extra wrath. That was already poured out in Jesus. And we'll read about that in a, in a little while where it talks about how the wrath was poured out in Jesus. Because the reality is, is that Jesus took care of what was driving us, what was driving a wedge between us and our Creator. Jesus took care of sin. In Romans 5, 2, it says, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And this is, remember, this is still, we have, because we have been justified by faith, we have peace and we also have access. This is an amazing thing. We have access to God. I think about this. You know, important people, some of us don't even have access to our managers at work. Closed-door policy. We certainly don't have access, regular access to our governors and our mayor. We couldn't just walk into the office. And you think about it, you go up the chain, the more important a person is, it seems like the less access we have. I certainly couldn't go knock on the White House door and try to speak to President Trump. You wouldn't get through the front door. We don't have access. But because we've been justified by faith, we have access to God. Is that an amazing thing? I'd rather speak to God than President Trump, to be honest. <laughs> that's going to that's, that's be much more beneficial to my soul. And it's not because it was President Trump, it'd be any president. Because they're, they're, it doesn't matter how important they are, they're still not as important as God. The, the scripture says that, that God is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He's, he's head honcho. Head Pumba, he's on top, El Jefe. He's number one. We can have access to God. We can have a personal relationship with God. That's amazing. Some of us can't even work out a relationship with our kids. But we can have a relationship with our God. And we have this introduction because when Jesus died, the veil was torn. Luke 23, 44-35 says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn, in two there was a curtain that hung between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. And depending on which scholar you talk to, they say that that curtain could have been as thick as a man's hand sideways. It could have been like this thick, and it was just torn in two. 
demonstrating that we now have access into the Holy of Holies right there looking face to face with God. And not only do we have access, this is what Hebrews 10.19 says, it says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Not only do we have access, but we can go into there with confidence. We can go in there with boldness. We can go in there with our head held high, a little bit cocky, knowing that we can walk in the room and see Jesus. We can speak to God because he that we're that we're at that level with him. We can have confidence to speak to our God. And it's by faith into grace that we stand. By faith, we enter into that grace that allows us to do these things. And you know, the reality is, is grace is what, this is what he's talking about, access by faith into this grace. Grace is the thing that separates Christianity from every single other religion. Let me tell you a story. And during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any belief was unique to the Christian faith. And they began eliminating possibilities. Incarnations, other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Resurrection, again, other religions had accounts of return from death. And the debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and said, what's the rumpus about, he asked, and heard a reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And after some discussion, the Comfries had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to be seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, and Muslim Code of Law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only, God, only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Every other religion in the world is a list of steps that you have to perform in order to make yourself right with God. And on top, you can never know for sure. You're just hoping that in the end, the scales balance out. But Christianity is the only one where God came to us. Every other one is about us going to God, climbing to meet God, working to meet God. But Christianity is the only one where God stepped down to meet us. He made a way for us. And it's this grace, Him coming to us, giving it to us freely by faith alone that gives us access into His throne. The reality is, is that God wants you in his throne room. God wants you to be there. Isn't that amazing? I know the mayor of this city doesn't want me to show up on his doorstep. But God wants me to be there with him. Think about that for a moment. I think sometimes we, we take for granted what that means. Like, oh yeah, God wants to be. Oh yeah, God wants to have a relationship. But it's because we don't actually take a moment back and step back and think about who God is. We're understanding more and more of how the universe works. And it's amazing how many stars there are and how big the universe is and how it's expanding and how we're learning more and more about it and how things are working. And there's dark matter and there's regular matter and there's all this stuff. And maybe we got it wrong and everything we know is wrong anyway. But God put this together. Like, it amazes me. It's one of the things that used to, that, that's really difficult about reading the Old Testament to me is, is have you guys ever read where it describes how to build the temple. It is incredibly detailed, and you have to read it twice in a row. And like it's, I can't even picture it in my mind. Like I have to look at pictures like, what is, like I can't follow it. But it is so detailed, and it takes so long to read. And I'm like, oh my goodness, will this ever get over? 
But I, I wonder, like, why is this in here? I mean, it's not like we're going to rebuild the temple again. Actually, the, the Bible says it won't be built again. Even if you wanted to, you had the plans, it's not going to happen. So why is it in there? But I, I, there's a reality is that, that nothing is left to chance with God. Everything is perfect. Everything is perfectly laid out. We begin to see a God who is detailed and has intimate knowledge about everything should be, and he built the universe this way. We see how stuff works together, and like we, 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 we get to stuff, we're learning that, that electrons, they can act like a wave or they can act like a particle. And that's just bizarre because you know, typically something has to act as one or the other. We find out, no, it can, act, it can act in both ways. And sometimes it depends on if you're looking at it or not how it acts. That's a real thing. How, if, you're look, if you're observing something on that small of a level, it'll behave differently than if you're not observing it. It's very bizarre. God put all that together. He knows how it works. It all fits together perfectly. So we're not talking about someone who designed the, the Taj Mahal, which would be pretty cool to meet someone that designed something that beautiful, or to speak to Michelangelo who painted the system. We're talking about a God who created the entire universe, how everything works together, and you get to talk to him. You get to be in the same room as him. He lets you anytime you want. Not, it does not, you don't even have to get on the schedule. Whenever you want. I think we forget who God is sometimes. We forget how awesome. And we, we think that it's the same as, as, as speaking to our, our wives, but the reality is, is that you, you know, your wife, you're around them all the time, or your husband, you're around them all the time, and you have access to them because you live with them. But, but in the scheme of things, they're just another person like you. This is God. And we get to speak to him whenever we want. And it's this grace that gives us this access. It's this free gift that was everything that he accomplished in Jesus Christ. And then he says, as a result of the justification by faith, we also rejoice in hope. I was just pointing at it. You can go back. <laughs> it says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In other words, we can have confidence in our future. Because Christian hope's not the same as worldly hope. It's not like saying, I hope it rains today. You can hope it rains, but in Arizona, it's probably not going to happen. You can hope the Cardinals don't go 0 and 16. Still probably. That's got a pretty good chance of happening, no matter what you hope. But Christian hope is confidence in the Lord. To do what he said that he would do, it's a done deal. Christian hope is different than worldly hope. And it's hope that we will share in this glory. We can rejoice in that hope because it's a done deal that we will rejoice in his glory. We will spend time in his glory, that we will share in his glory. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, it says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, this is one of those scriptures nobody likes to read because nobody wants to rejoice in their sufferings. Raise your hand if you want to rejoice in your sufferings. Liars go to hell. Remember that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> nobody wants to rejoice in suffering. This is something that doesn't make sense in our brains. But the reality is, is that we should rejoice in our sufferings. Why should we exalt or rejoice in our sufferings? Because we grow in them. And then it goes on to say that this produces endurance 
Others, other translations say perseverance. What this means is that when we rejoice in our suffering, we don't, now I want you to remember too, it doesn't mean we rejoice for our suffering. There is a difference. We rejoice in our suffering. That means that while we're going through something that's suffering, we rejoice despite of the circumstances, despite of the situation. We're not like, oh, thank you, Lord, that I have cancer. That would be stupid. We rejoice in spite of those things. If you have something going on in your life and things aren't going right, you don't thank God for those things. You thank God in spite of those things. And even though you're going through those things, He still loves you. He still cares about you. He's still going to get you through whatever you're going through. We rejoice in our sufferings, not for our suffering. And this produces perseverance or endurance because we're trusting God through them. The more you trust God and the more you experience the salvation power, the resurrection power, the ability to get you through whatever you're going through, it makes it easier the next time. It's like when you go out jogging the first time, it, you know, your lungs hurt, your legs hurt, your body, it's, it's impossible. The more you do it, the easier it is to run. Abraham didn't waver in his faith is what Paul said last week. Despite the circumstances. We talked about the circumstances. And then it says that when we do that, this endurance produces character. Character is who you are. When you do it enough, it's no longer enduring. It's just part of who you are. Proven character is not something that's passing. Character is not something that you're, you're, you're there for one moment and gone the next. Character is just part of who you are. And then it goes on to say that this character produces hope. We talked about that earlier. Hope is our confidence in God. It's a done deal. We know that our God is faithful and that our confidence increases all the more. And you can see as these things happen, the, 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 the hope increases, the, the trusting in God increases, and it all becomes easier and easier. And then he says, our hope does not put us to shame. See, that's the amazing thing is that when we trust, we hope, we put our faith in God. He is always faithful. It may not always be easy to go through suffering, but we can rejoice to know that it doesn't matter how bad it gets, He is still there. He's faithful. He never gives up. David said this in Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Now, David saw some pretty awful stuff. I'm sure he saw people going through hard times, but that didn't discourage him from saying this because he realized that his God got them through it every time. They, he made a way. And then it says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God has poured out his love continually into us. I'm always amazed by God's love. If God would have sent his son and expressed his love in that way, which he did, and stop there, that would have been enough. But he still continually pours out his love daily into us. The scripture says his mercies are new every single morning. And then he sent the Holy Spirit to testify with our spirit that we are children of God. We're going to read about that in Romans 8 and 16 and 17. It says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
And we'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 8. But the short story is, is that we suffer with Christ through faith. Because it is by faith that we switch places with him. Then he goes to the cross for us and we have his newness of life. So by faith we suffer with him. But it's amazing to me that the Holy Spirit testifies with us because we can know that we are saved. We can be certain. We can be sure. And if we have any doubt, even the Holy Spirit inside of us reminds us to know. The problem is, is too often we don't listen. But the Holy Spirit testifies with your spirit that you are saved. We don't have to wonder. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a right person, though perhaps for a good person would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Too far in this, there's three things that I want to look at. One, oops, let me go to the next slide for me, please. For the first the things that I want to look at is, is three points I want to point out. Is one is that, God, Jesus came at the right time. So we have, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I don't know about you, but I've always wondered why Jesus came so late in the game. Like, it always seemed to me, you know, when I was trying to explain to God how he should have done it, that maybe we shouldn't have had this whole period with the law if, you were gonna, if there was going to be a fall, just send Jesus right away and, and be done with it. Why, why, did, why was there a whole period of the law? Why did all this have to happen? Why did Jesus come thousands of years later? I've always wondered that. Now, I've come to realize that it's because of us, really. Because we're prideful and arrogant. And had God not let there been a period of time and said, all right, here's the standard. See what you can do. And we were to finally recognize that we can't meet the standard, and then we're, we're, we're ready to receive a Savior. We're ready to recognize that we need a Savior. But can you imagine that if right after the fall, God sent Jesus, we'd have been like, what did you send him for? I can do this on my own. Just tell me what i got to do. Matter of fact, people still do that today, and we already have the plumb line. And people still do that thinking they can make it on their own. But one thing that I know is that God's timing is not the same as our timing, and the Scripture says that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God's timing is exact and perfect. Two, it says, while we were still weak. In other words, we were powerless. I don't know about you guys, but I remember when my younger days, and I agreed with the Word of God, I agreed with the law, but I really hadn't had a revelation of what salvation meant. So I was trying to do everything on my own. I was trying to live for God on my own. And I was weak and powerless to live to the standards that he had given. So I would go to bed every night asking God to forgive me for a laundry list of sins, and I'd get up the next day and just do them again, even though I didn't want to. And then I would feel guilty that next night. I'd, I would pray again, and I, I know I've told most of you guys, I remember just, I couldn't wait till I turned 18, so at least smoking would be legal. It would be one less sin on my checklist that I had to ask God forgiveness for. But I was weak and powerless to live the way that God wanted me to. Even while we were weak and powerless, at the right time Christ came for the ungodly. Christ's death was a substitution for those who deserved it themselves. He died for the ungodly. He died for those who weren't right with God. You see, we have to be certain to recognize that 
Jesus died for us while we were helpless in sinners. Even he says that, that, that you don't send a physician for somebody who's well. That's what Jesus said. He didn't wait till we were living good enough. He didn't wait till we were coming to church enough. He didn't wait till, till we met some standard, even, even a standard that we set. He didn't wait. He came while we were broken, while we were down in the dumps, while we couldn't do anything ourselves. And he didn't do it for who we are, but he did it in spite of who we were. I mean, you think about the state that you were in before salvation. As a sinner, he came and died for you like that. He cared about you enough to come. It's amazing to me. And the reality is, is that giving your life for somebody is not done flippantly. He says, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, so while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. They've done studies and say that you're more likely to, to put your life in danger for someone you don't know than somebody you do. If you know something bad about somebody, you're less likely to give your life for theirs. But if you don't know somebody, they could be a, a mass murderer or a pedophile. If you didn't know, you would just see them as a person and you would give your life for them. But if you knew that they were a pedophile or a murderer, you would probably just let them get hit by the train. Jesus knew all the bad about you. All the stuff that you have repressed in your memory, stuff that you haven't even told your wife or your husband, all the stuff that you don't want anybody to know, Jesus knew about all of that, yet he still went to the cross for you. He still gave his life for you. This is why I believe that sin has been 100% completely dealt with. Sin is not an issue for God anymore, at least the penalty for it, because it was paid in Jesus. I believe that nobody is going to hell for their sins. They're going to hell for not receiving the free gift of Jesus Christ. Sin has been dealt with. Now, don't get me wrong. If you don't receive that free gift, the Scripture says you are storing up wrath. But sin has been dealt with for everybody. Not just for Christians, not just for the people that God knows are going to get saved. Even the people that God knew would never get saved, would never receive, he still died for them. Romans 5, 9 through 10 says, Since, there have, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Did you know that if God was willing to die for you while you were at your worst, while you were a sinner, while you were broken, if he was willing to die for you to show you that amount of love when you were like that, imagine what kind of love he would show for you now that you've been made right, now that you are right with him. That's what he's saying here. He says, we have been now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If he did all that while we were a mess, think of what he'll do now that you're right with him. Because his love's poured out for him. And we're saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. And to be sure, like I said, there is a wrath to come. The scripture says that if you're not saved, you are storing up wrath. You will give an account. You will pay the penalty because you refuse to accept the payment that was already been made by Jesus Christ. 
But I want you to know as a believer, there is no wrath to come. John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10 says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians, just in case you thought it was just in a couple places. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 8, 1, it says, Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the readings like that that are, this is why I don't believe that when something horrible happens, it is judgment from God. Because if it affects Christians, it can't be a judgment from God. Because his judgment has already been poured out into his son. That's why when people claim that, that the, the, the hurricane that hit New Orleans was some sort of judgment from God, I don't believe it in the slightest because first, it missed the worst parts of New Orleans. The red light district stood up just fine. Either God's got some awful aim or it wasn't judgment from Him. If Christians are wrapped up in it, it is not judgment from Him. But just like when people declare that it's, it's punishment from God because the Scripture says that, that a father admonishes his children. So that means if it affects Christians and non-Christians alike, it's not from God because God doesn't discipline those who are not His children. As Christians, we escape the wrath of God, the judgment of God, because it was poured out completely in His Son. And if there is more wrath to come, if there is more that has to be endured, that means that what happened in His Son wasn't enough. And if what happened in His Son was not enough, then we're all in a mess. But if Christ's death accomplished so much for us, how much more will He do for us in His life? He intercedes for us. And if you guys know that God, He intercedes for us in heaven right now. In His life, this newness of life, it's manifest in us, in our lives, as we are being made brand new. You see, in our spirit, when we get saved, a miracle happens instantly. We are considered righteous. The problem is that for some of us, it takes a little while for our bodies to catch up to the reality of what's happened on the inside. But we are made new creations in Him. We are made, we have given, given a new life. And it's not that our slates have just been wiped clean because forgiveness is good, but a new life is better. We're finally able to live the life that He's called us to live because we have a new life. We don't have that same old life that was in bondage to sin. It's not like He just wiped our sin away but left us with the broken issue. It's like getting a, a tire and, and it lets all the air out so you fill it back up with air but it'll just go flat again if you don't fix the hole. In Jesus, he fixed the hole. He fixed the issue. We're no longer in bondage to sin, no longer a slave to sin, no longer in bondage to death, no longer required to be held down and torn apart by addictions. In his son, we are free, we are new, and we are alive. Amen? And then we'll end here in Romans 5.11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, salvation is so much more than just the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is good, don't get me wrong. But that would just still leave us in the position we were with just a clean slate, and we'd start racking up more debt. 
Our sins are forgiven in his death, but we are saved in his life because we're made brand new. And the reality is, is that we don't exalt ourselves in this because we're not given a new life of our own doing. It's because of him. It says we rejoice in God through Jesus because it was through him we've received reconciliation. In Jesus, we are reconciled to God. And what this means to be reconciled to God is to be restored in relationship, to be restored into fellowship with him. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus restored peace to us where once we were enemies with God. See, the interesting thing is is that man had declared war on God. But instead of God doing the same in return, even though we deserve to be condemned internally, internally, eternally, and internally, God didn't declare war in return. Isn't that amazing? Instead, he sent his son as the peacemaker. He sent his son to make things right, that we might have a restored relationship with him. Forgiveness is good. Salvation is good. Freedom is good. Newness in life is good. But a personal relationship with the God who created you, the one who loves you, I don't know about you guys, but I think that's amazing. 